Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 4, train yourself for godliness, for bodily training is of some value for this life, but training for godliness is of value for all things and holds promise for the life to come. Paul teaches in 1 Timothy chapter 4 that when you work out your body, when you train your body, when you, when you try to be healthy with your body, there's value to that, but only a little. When he says of some value, a little value, that Greek word means puny. It's real little. There's just a little bit of value for it. It's restricted value. It's restricted in that it's good for this life only. That's what he says. has some value, little value for this life. But training for godliness is a value for all things. Paul said, unrestricted value there is in training yourself for godliness, training yourself spiritually. And not only is it unrestricted, and not only is it good for all things, it also holds promise for the life to come. This life and the next life, training for godliness. He wants us to think about becoming godly, growing spiritually, remaining in Christ. I'm using those interchangeably. I can. Because to remain in Christ is to be godly. To be godly is to grow spiritually. And all of those things sort of are saying the same thing with different words. He wants us to think about training for godliness or becoming spiritual and growing that way in terms of training. He doesn't say, let yourself be taught to be godly. He doesn't say, learn how to be godly. He doesn't say, want to be godly. He says, train yourself to be godly. It's where we get our English word gymnasium. Just like you go to the gym to work out your body, Paul says you need to think that way about becoming godly. You need to work out your soul and work out your spirit. Just like going to the YMCA means you exert energy and you're going to sweat and you're probably going to hurt and you're going to stretch your body into stratas that, that it doesn't feel good. That's, that's the mentality or the mindset that Paul wants you to have about remaining in Christ, about growing spiritually and becoming godly. You're going to stretch yourself to do that. It's going to come only with sweat. It's going to come only with effort and stretching yourself into areas that you've never been before. He uses that word train because he wants us to think about it in those terms. Train yourself to be godly. What's it mean to be godly? When you go to the Y to work out, you know what you're there for. You want to be in good health. You want a lean body. You want to lose fat. You want to put on muscle. You're looking to have some more energy, maybe looking to boost self-image a little bit. We know what we're doing there. What are you doing when you're training yourself to be godly? You're aiming at godliness, which very simply put means to be godlike, to become like Jesus. The reason you exert energy and train yourself is to have your heart shaped like Jesus' heart. Because it starts in here. It's not just, and I'm not being critical of this, it's not just what would Jesus do. That's okay. But it's how does he think? What's his heart like? I want to not just do what he did or would do. I want to think like him. I want to have a heart like him. The word godliness in the Greek means to have an internal reverence and awe and respect 
and fear for God that ultimately shapes your heart and then shows itself in your life. Just like remaining in Jesus causes you to bear fruit. It will ultimately have that outer expression when you are remaining in him and when you're training this way. So we're thinking about training, and the question we're asking over the next several weeks is, how do I do it? What is involved in training? I know what's involved when I'm training my body. There's weights. There's running shoes, there's treadmills, there's elliptical machines, on and on and on. All these things I know I use to train my body. What do I use to train my soul, my spirit, to become godly? What do I use? And we're going to look at the spiritual disciplines. Because living in the spiritual disciplines is what trains a heart to be godly. Notice I did not say doing the spiritual disciplines. Did you notice that? Say yes. Living them. These spiritual disciplines becoming a part of your life, becoming a part of the fiber of who you are. It's the rhythm of your day, the rhythm of your week, your month. This is just the rhythm of your life, is living these spiritual disciplines. And these disciplines include scripture intake, which is what we're going to look at today. Scripture and prayer and fellowship and fasting and simplicity and worship. Take a week. Hopefully a week on each one. We'll see how it goes. Maybe we'll stretch that a little bit. Today we're going to think about Scripture. And when you begin to think about the Bible in terms of being an instrument to train your soul, it kind of get, it tweaks your image of the Bible a little bit. All of a sudden this starts to look like a dumbbell for the heart, doesn't it? This starts to look like training. This is a treadmill for the soul all of a sudden. This is what I use to train my soul. But I want to expand that image. I don't want you to stay there. It's important. It's okay. But I don't want you to stay there. I want it to be bigger than that. You know, for those, and part of the reason is for those of you who do work out every week, go to the Y, that's an okay image for you. For those of you that go, eh, to working out, you hear that and go, ah. The Bible is a Dumbbell. How about the Bible as a pizza? I mean, let's just have, you know, that image. That, that, that's my paradigm there, you know. Well, it is, it is like a treadmill. It's what you use to train, but let's expand it. I want you to turn to Deuteronomy 32 with me. And when you get there, look up here, because I want to say a few things before we read this text. Deuteronomy chapter 32. Just shine your your peepers at me when you're there, so I know you're there. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, God has just told Moses that it's time to die. How'd you like that message? He did that often with saints of his, particularly in the Old Testament. He let them know it was time to die. And he's telling Moses in chapter 32 and a little before 32... I want you to go up on this mountain, and I want you to look out over the promised land. That's where I'm about to bring my people, but you're not allowed to go in there because of your disobedience. You can wrestle with that another day. I still wrestle with that. I'd have let him in. Would you? I don't know. I'd have let him in. But God was right. God, everything he does is right. Did you know that? You believe that? But sometimes it doesn't feel that way to us, does it? Doesn't to me. i got to move on. That's a side note. Um, so God tells him, when you go up on that mountain, look out over the promised land. That's where my people's going. That's what I promised them. You're not going to go in there. You're just going to drop dead on the top of that mountain after you look around a little bit. 
And Moses, hearing that message, decides he gets to speak to the nation of Israel one more time. To say that he had been an important leader over the nation of Israel may be the grossest understatement I'll make today. The very covenant between God and his people came through Moses. Moses is the one God chose to be his instrument to lead his people out of heinous slavery that they'd lived in. When God called Israel to be his people, he called Moses to lead them for him. I mean, this was a very important leader. They loved Moses. And he sat down at his desk and wondered, what do I want to say to him one last time? And God led him to write a song. And he wrote a song under the inspiration of God. And he, one afternoon, grabbed Joshua, who was his successor, and called the entire nation together, and he recited this song to them with Joshua there, sort of as passing, pardon me, the baton, if you will, off to Joshua. Now, look in chapter 32, verse 44. Moses came and recited all of the words of this song in the hearing of the people, and Joshua the son of Nun. And when Moses had finished speaking all of these words to all of Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all of the words of this law. Verse 47, now watch. Moses says, For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. That's the right image of the Word of God. This book is no empty word to you. It is your life. It's your life. This this book... And I mean this. I mean this with every fiber. I mean, this book is a matter of life and death to your soul. This book is. It's your life. Isn't it one thing to be told, go to the YMCA and work out. It's going to make you healthy. Or being told, go to the YMCA. It'll save your life today. That's different. I say, drink this juice. Squeeze juice. It's good for you. It's healthy. Drink this juice. Versus, drink this juice, it'll save your life. Now that's the way to approach the discipline of the Word of God, the spiritual discipline of the Holy Scriptures, to train your soul for godliness, to see it as your life. My job over these next few weeks is to show you each one of these spiritual disciplines from the Scriptures. These are not things that I've made up or the, or the church fathers made up. These things go back in the history of the church, from the founding of the church, but they're not made up. They're not human. They come from the Scriptures. And so my job is to show you each week where fasting is taught in here and what it means and all of, all of that. And then, to be very practical, I promised you practicality is then how do I train with it then? I see what the Bible says about it. How do I train? My outline probably will look the same every single week, the next several weeks. What's the Bible say about it? Then how do I train? So what does the Bible say about the Scriptures? What does the Bible say about holy 
scriptures. We're going to go to two passages, one in the New Testament, one in the Old. In the New Testament, I want to show you how the scriptures, listen, are you with me? Say yes. I want to show you how the scriptures are absolutely and totally sufficient for your life. And when you see that they're sufficient for your life, it should move you to trust them. To trust every word in here. Then we're going to go to the Old Testament. And what I'm going to show you in Psalm 19 is the benefits of having this word in you and training with this word and having it. The benefits of it. And when you see the benefits of the word of God, then it should move you to want them. To desire them. That's... That's what I want to talk about and look at the word. So come with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's going to get good now. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I'm really going to zero in on, on 16 and 17. But I want to begin reading verse 14. Verse 14, Paul is writing to Timothy. You know, Timothy's a young man. Nobody knows about how old. But most guess somewhere around 18, 19, 20, somewhere in that range. He's a young guy. Paul's made him pastor over a few of these churches. And in verse 14, Paul writes, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, in Christ Jesus. Stop. Before I get to 16, I can't help but make a little comment here. Well, it's probably a big comment, but it's a parenthesis. Okay, I want to put a parenthesis in this message here because what Paul just said to Timothy is something we can't read over too fast. What he says is, I want you to stay in the Word of God. He calls them the sacred writings. I love, I love that phrase for our Bible. These are sacred writings. And Paul says to Timothy, don't go away from that. Continue in the sacred writings that, listen, you have learned from childhood. Timothy was raised in the Word of God. And later, if you want to, you can look in chapter 1 because we find out who raised him in the Word of God. His grandma Lois and his mama Eunice. His grandma and his mama. They're the ones who raised him in the Word of God. You know why? We learn in Acts 16 that his father was called, quote-unquote, a heathen Greek, an unbeliever. And we know, because of some different clues, that not only was he an unbeliever, but he was an obstinate unbeliever that didn't want his son to have anything to do with Jesus and the way, the church, because he didn't allow him to be circumcised. When Paul found Timothy, young teenager, first thing Paul did was circumcise him. Yow. <laughs> Not because Paul knew he needed that for salvation, but because they were going out and ministering. And so Paul didn't want anything to stand in the way of the ministry. I have become all things to all people to win as many as possible. Paul believed that, you know. So Timothy's heathen father stood in the way of him even being circumcised as a kid. Yet, grandma and mama raised him in the word of God. So what I want to say is a word to you moms who have unsaved husbands. And some unsaved husbands are obstinate against the things of God. And they don't want their kids or wife going to church. And they don't want their kids to be reading their Bibles. And they even go so far as to persecute their own kids and, and their wife for these things. Some unsaved husbands are just removed and ignore it and are indifferent to it. That that's happens too. 
And, and I want this word to include you single moms as well. And what I want to say to you is we learn a very powerful, profound lesson from Lois and Eunice, and that is your ministry of the things of God to your kids can and will direct their lives all the days of their lives. Your ministry of the word in their life will trump, listen to me, will trump their unsaved dad's philosophies and obstinance. So I just simply want to say this to you moms. Don't you give up. Don't ever give up. Think about it. Think how cool this is. Heathen, Greek, dad, against the things of God. Grandmama and mama raise him in the things of God. And he becomes the Apostle Paul's protege. And Paul trains him. And Paul makes him a pastor. And Paul puts him over churches. And two of the letters in our New Testament are named after him. And he had a dad that hated the things of God. So don't you give up, Mom. Endure. Persevere. Your ministry is not in vain. I promise you. But i got to say something to dads, too. Are you teaching your kids the things of God? You teach your kids the Bible? If you believe what I said earlier, that this book is your life, are you giving them life? Or are you more concerned that they know how to work on a car or throw a football or get good grades? Are you more concerned that they know how to do math than they are to memorize the Bible? Listen, getting good grades, knowing how to, how to uh, uh, do math and, and, and knowing how to fix a car has a little value for this life, just a little. But taking the Word of God, teaching it to your kids, living it before your kids, making it a part of the fabric of your kids' lives has value for all things and holds promise for eternity. Listen, I guarantee you, Dad, well, listen, I guarantee you, your daughter's going to stand before God someday. And God is not going to ask her, divide 40 by 2. That won't be a question. He's not going to ask your son, describe how to change the oil in a car. He's going to ask him about this. And your daughter's going to look God in the eye and have a talk about this. Teach your kids the Bible. Close parenthesis. If you look on in verse 16, we see just how sufficient the Scriptures are. Absolutely. Verse 16, Paul writes, all Scripture is breathed out by God. How much of Scripture is breathed out by God? All of it breathed out by God. That's my favorite Greek word, theonoustos. Two Greek words, theo, theo means God, and noustos means breath. You know, it's, it's the kind of breath that when you're talking, you can feel 
the, the breath from your lungs coming out. That's theonoustos. If you look at the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 2, when God made Adam, did you see the cool way he made Adam? He just made a pile of dust, right? He gathered some dirt from the ground, and then he went, and Adam appeared. Now here's what we learn about theonoustos. Wherever God breathes, there's life. You can't get in the way of the breath of God without experiencing life. That's why Hebrews 4 says that the Word of God is living and active. This is a living organism. Why? Because it came from God. It's like after the resurrection, Jesus looked at his guys and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And then he breathed on them, he says. Holy Spirit came. It's life. So the first thing is that this comes from God. This comes from the lungs of God. And is profitable, Paul says. That means it's good. It's valuable for teaching. This book is worth teaching. This book is worth someone picking it apart, studying it, uh, uh, understanding its grammatical, historical context, and bringing it into our current cultural context. It's worth this. It's worth what we're doing in here right now. It's profitable for teaching and for reproof. You know what reproof means? It means pointing out where you're not doing good. And it does that. Every now and then you'll read the Bible and you feel a finger in your gut. You ever feel a finger in your gut? Mm-mm. It points out the wrong of your life, the sin of your life, the way you're thinking wrong, saying wrong, thinking motives, all of that. The Bible points that out. But it doesn't just stick you in the gut. Look on, he says, it's good for correction. Not only is it sticking in the gut, but then it shows you how you should be thinking, speaking, living, acting motives. It shows you what you should be doing. It doesn't just say, here's where you're missing it. It says, here's how you get it. That's what the Bible does. Look on. And for training, there's our word, in righteousness. This book is what you use to become upright and to live in, in terms of the will of God. That the man of God may be competent. The word competent means to be completely qualified. There's nothing left that, that, that you need to be qualified, completely qualified. And then look, equipped. That word means to furnish you with everything you need for every good work. Check it out. This book comes from God. This is God's word, not man's word. And it's good for teaching. You need to learn it. It's good for reproof. It's good for correction. It's good for training in righteousness. It makes you completely qualified. It gives you everything you need to be a good dad, to be a good mom, to be a good employee, to be a, a great servant in the Word of God. It gives you everything that you need. That's what it is. So this is why I say the Bible is sufficient. Trust it. Who believes that? Say amen. amen. Right? Now, let me show you the benefits of it. Come back to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. I'm having fun now. Psalm 19, look at verse 7. Now watch how David, he's talking about the Holy Scriptures. He's talking about the sacred writings, but he calls them different things. But he's talking about the Word of the Lord. Look, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. 
The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. Warned In keeping them there is great reward. He's talking about the word of God here. He calls it the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the rules of the Lord. He's calling it these different things. But if you notice, after every one of those titles he gives the scriptures, he says, of the Lord. Now, is the word Lord in all caps in your Bible? Yes? If it's not, get you a different Bible. Should be in all caps, because that's a translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh. Yahweh means the only self-sufficient, self-existent, great I am. David's talking about the word of the I am. The word of the God of gods and king of kings. That's When Israel heard this name, Yahweh, that's what they thought. This is the word of Yahweh. Now look at the benefits. He gives us five. Verse seven. Number one, he says, the law of the Lord is perfect and it revives your soul. I love this word. Revives your soul. You know what it means? The word literally means, get this now, if you're not with me, elbow him, elbow him if you're not there. The word revive means to return to your place of departure. Go back to your place of departure. And here's the image. Hebrew language is so picturesque. The language is, or the image is, have, have you ever gone on vacation and it takes you a couple, two or three days to decompress? Who's done that? Say me. Like the first day or two, you're still like this on the inside. And then it kind of goes along. By the third day, you're like this on the inside. That's right. This is, this is what I should be doing full-time right here. Why do I work? This is so much better. I love this. But then Monday comes. You know Monday comes, right? And then you go back, and within about two days, you're back to being like this, right? You all can relate to that. I know you can. This word means to return to the place of departure, to return to the place when it started to turn, where you went from this to this. So when he says the Holy Scriptures revives the soul, it means that regardless of what's going on around you, because it's not going to change what's going on around you. You have no power in what's going on around you. Sorry, control freaks, don't mean to burst your bubble, but you have no control in what's going on around you. But the Word of God can control your soul and bring you to a place of revival. Every time. Next it says... Or David writes, the testimony of the Lord makes wise the simple. Love it. We know what it means to be wise. Just make right decisions. Know how to live. Be successful in life. Makes wise the simple. I love how David adds there, the simple. As if to say, the word of the Lord can make you wise. Even dopes can be wise when they stay in the word. Even, even dopes. That's what the word literally kind of means. Dopes. So it'll revive your soul. It'll make... The wise, the simple. It rejoices the heart. The word rejoice means just what you think it does, to make you happy. It makes the heart happy. One Hebrew lexicon said the word glee. It brings glee to the heart. That's what the Bible does. It brings glee 
to the heart. It enlightens the eyes. The eyes, in the language of the Hebrews, meant understanding. It meant um, mental illumination. Like when Paul prayed for the Ephesians and he said, I'm praying that the eyes of your heart would be open to what God has called you to, the hope to which God has called you to. So the word of God gives you knowledge. It opens your eyes. It helps you see things. It gives you some mental clarity on reality and life around you. It endures forever, the fear of the Lord. The word of God endures forever. Kings and rulers and leaders of different nations have tried to stamp out the word of God throughout history on multiple different occasions, and it didn't work. The Bible is still the number one bestseller in the world, and it will be to... I'm no prophet, but you listen to this preacher. It will be to the end of the world. It ain't going anywhere. Right? I'd have said amen there, too. It ain't going anywhere. And the rules of the Lord are true, and they're righteous altogether. Look at verse 10. The Bible, the holy writings, the sacred writings, the scriptures are more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. I don't know if you believe that. Don't answer. I don't know if you do. But if somebody says to you this afternoon, I'll give you $10 million, or you can have your Bible. You can't have both. You want a little advice from this guy? You take the Bible. And you say, but if I'm to be honest, $10 million would revive me, I think. I, I think I would feel glee in my heart, ten, 10 million bucks. And listen, you would. Who wouldn't? You absolutely would for a season, and then you'd find that it would just weigh you down. You don't believe it? Be here in a couple of weeks when I preach on simplicity. I double-dog dare you. So that's the benefits of the word. Going to rejoice your heart, revive your spirit, bring you to a place of tranquility, make you to cause or cause you to know how to make right decisions in life and to live like a wise person. It's going to illuminate your mind, help you to see reality, understand things around you. See, that's the benefits of the world, and I think that should make you want it. Seeing the sufficiency of the scripture should make you trust it. Seeing the benefits of the scripture should make you want it. Now, listen, Ooh, this is important. That, that is a powerful combination. When you trust something and you want it, that's a powerful combination. And it has the power to destroy your life, that combination. When you believe that Jack Daniels will help you deal with life, you trust that and you prove it because you're drinking it all the time, it's how you deal with the day, deal with the week. When you believe that's what does it, and you want it, you destroy your life. And usually everybody's around you and your family could even kill people. Trusting something and wanting it is a powerful combination. And I'm saying under this discipline of scriptures, you trust it with all your heart. You want it with all your heart. That's powerful. Oh, man, that's powerful. That's powerful. So, how do I train? What do I do with it? I get it, Tony. I believe it. They're trustworthy. They're sufficient. Great benefit to me. I want it. But now what do I do with it? The Bible bears out different things that we're to do with the Word of God that become then our spiritual disciplines with the Bible. 
This is how it becomes this dumbbell right here. Number one, you hear the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of the Lord. You hear it. That means you listen to it being taught. What you're doing today is an aspect of the spiritual discipline of scriptural intake. It's good that you're here. It's good that you that you uh, uh, want to hear the word taught and preached. You know, when I give these practical things, I'm going to tell you what I do and give you some tips. You've got to work out your own training program. These are just tips from your Uncle Tony. That's all I'm giving you. And then let you know what I do, you know, what works for me. I listen to between three and five sermons a week. Everybody needs taught. Everybody needs taught. All the days of their life, you will never reach a point where you'll say, I don't need to hear that anymore. Awesome. You'll never reach that point. You always need to be taught. I just do three to five sermons a week. I love it. I love to hear the Word of God preach. It's kind of my wheelhouse. That's what I do, so I, I get that. But you need to be taught, and there's no reason not to be taught throughout the week. Turn on Christian radio. You got an iPod? Plug in your, plug in your iPod and get some podcasts. Uh, you, you can send away for CDs. You can go to websites. You can do all kinds of different things to listen to preaching and teaching. And listen, when you do that, it'll have an effect on you. Last night, I didn't sleep very well. Um, and my spirit was really troubled last night about some things, deeply troubled, and I couldn't sleep. So finally, I reached over and grabbed my iPod and my headphones. I turned it on, and I listened to a sermon, and my spirit felt light, and I took it off, and I went to sleep. That's what it does. I could have laid there and stewed, but I know... I was preaching this this morning. I knew the Word of God does. So you hear it. The second thing you do is you read it. If you're serious about training with the Scriptures, you will read the Bible every single day. I'm not talking about studying or anything. I'm just talking about reading it. I'm talking about you, a cup of coffee, a cup of tea, the Bible on your lap. You're reading it. I've been preaching since I've been in the ministry that I believe personally that every believer should read through the Bible every single year. There's all kinds of methods of doing that. There's one out there in the lobby. You want to pick one up, you can do it. You say, yeah, but it's the 22nd. Well, make the 22nd the beginning of your year or the 23rd. My year is 23rd to 23rd. I'm doing the Robert Murray McShane way this year. I love it. I'm six days behind right now. I'll catch up. Then come July, I'll probably be ten weeks behind. I'll catch up. Just read. I Just read. Every day I read the Bible. Read. Got to read the Bible. Secondly... You study it. Or thirdly, I'm sorry. You, thirdly, you study it. You don't only just read it, but you have to study it. You've got to get into it. You've got to study books of the Bible. You've got to study uh, people in the Bible. You've got to study topics in the Bible. You've got to get into it, tear it apart. I like to diagram sentences. How sick is that? I take verses. I get paper. And I diagram the sentence. You ask the who's, the what's, the where's, the how's of the Bible passage. You just get into it. You've got to study it. You've got to get in. The Bible talks about studying the Word to show yourself approved. Then you've got to memorize it. You say, I, I knew he was going to say that. You've got to memorize the Bible. You've got to get it. Listen, that's the power for Christian living. I'm telling you. You having a hard time with sin? Stumbling over sin? Keep doing the same thing over and over and over? Don't want to raise your hand. I know a lot of you are. Over and over and over. David said, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. In other words, David knew his willpower wasn't going to work. Haven't you learned that yet? You hide that word in you. When I'm, when I'm reading it and something, you know, I just got it on my lap and I said, oh, I like that verse. I get a three by five note card out. Right? Keep it everywhere. 
pull in my pocket, put it on the dash of my car, put it in front of me on my desk when I'm working. Just, just want it in me. I just want it in me. There's something about when temptation comes and you say, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. It's powerful. So you memorize it. And then you meditate on it. Listen, don't let meditation scare you. You don't have to sit Indian style with your fingers like this, with candles all around you in a robe. Right? You don't have to shave your head to meditate. You don't have to do any of that. You know what meditate means? And it's all through the Bible. Psalm 1 says, The blessed man is the one who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. Meditates. We know that Isaac went out in the field and meditated. David wrote in the Psalms, On my pillow at night I meditate upon your law. You know what meditation is? I just think of it like this. It's chewing cud. So you take that verse that's on your... And you just... hmm. Turn the radio off in your car. I do that. Turn the radio off in my car. I rarely listen to the radio in my car. And that scripture verse is there. And you're able to say, don't meditate with your eyes closed at this point, but you're able to just say, (laughs) as you're driving, put to death what is earthly in you. I need to be putting to death what is earthly in me. It's my responsibility. You're telling me to put to death what is earthly in me. That's meditating. Shut your TV off for just 30 minutes. I like the TV. Take 30 minutes. Shut it off. Sit in your chair. Just think about that verse. What you heard preached. Put on scripture worship music. Music that sings scripture and meditate. John Michael Talbot's my favorite. Who does that? That's meditating. Now, let me help you with all of those. You look at the back of your note sheet. Can I see a note sheet? Mine disappeared up here. Thank you. Look at the back of your note sheet and your cartoon's gone for a few weeks. I'm sorry. It'll come back, I promise. I love those. But if you look, right there in the top middle is the uh, insignia there, or the, the um, I forgot this in the first service too. What do you call this, huh? Icon. Icon, whatever this is. Yeah, your the motto, spiritual discipline resources, right there. Here they are. Bible reading plans. They're everywhere. You can get them. You can be, there's some out in the lobby. You can be creative. You might say, you know what, in the next four months I want to read the New Testament. See how many pages the New Testament is in your Bible and divide it by whatever that is, 92 days or whatever, three months, four months, divide it by that. Read that many pages a day. I once knew somebody that read through the Bible twice a year, and he did it by dividing the pages of the Bible in that many days and did it. You could do that. Um, preaching. These are just some preachers I listen to all week. John Piper, John MacArthur, Chuck Swindoll, Alistair Begg. I listen to Tommy Nelson. There's all kinds of preachers you can listen to every single week and, and uh, uh, hear different preaching and teaching. You can. Make sure you're listening to somebody that's teaching the Word of God, though. Do not eat candy. Do not do that. God should make your antennas go up when you're hearing some junk. Listen to good, solid preaching. You can do it. Now, you say, I don't even know how to begin studying the Bible. I don't even know how to begin that. Well, I'm giving you two books here that you can, you can get. I recommend no, one by Tim LaHaye called How to Study the Bible for Yourself. That's a great book. I think my favorite, though, is Rick Warren's book. It is called Rick Warren's Bible Study Methods. You Can Unlock God's Word. That's a great practical book that will teach you how to study the Word of God. And then memory. You say, I need, I need a little bit more structure for me memorizing Scripture. I don't think anybody does it better than the navigators. I just don't. 
Their publishing arm is called Nav Press, and you can go there and you can get scripture memory systems around topics, around books of the Bible, and all of that. Now, to help you even more, if you go to our website, on our front page, you will see that little insignia, that motto thing. Click on that, and all of this will open. You'll see this exactly. And you can put your cursor over any one of those things, and it will take you to that place. So you put your cursor over Bible reading plans and you click it, there's going to be this thing opens up that has about 20 different plans you can choose from. You click over John MacArthur, it's going to take you to his website where you can listen to his sermons. You click over the navigators, it's going to take you right to Nav Press's page where you can get scripture memory. I am trying to give you everything I can because I want you to lift up this barbell and start working out with it. You get it? Now, I'm going to close by doing this. I want to give you permission right now to not feel overwhelmed. I finished typing this sermon and I thought, I feel overwhelmed right now. What about the person that just doesn't do anything with the Bible, but they're wanting to now? That's just, it's like looking at Mount Everest and going, my gosh. I I want to give you permission not to feel overwhelmed. If you feel overwhelmed and kind of discouraged and where am I going to start that? Those kind of emotions, I guarantee you, I guarantee you is not coming from your God. All you got to do is walk out there and say, I'm just going to take a couple baby steps this week. I'm going to get these dudes a couple baby steps. I'm going to listen to one sermon. About Wednesday, Thursday, I'm going to listen to a sermon. Bible reading, I'm looking at those plans. That seems a little big. But I'm going to read 1 John this week, five chapters, seven days. I'm just going to divide that up. I'm going to read 1 John. I'll pick a verse out of there. I'm going to find a verse with three words and memorize it. There's three words. I'm going to three verse, <laughs> verse. And I'm going to memorize that, and I'm going to meditate on that a little bit this week. Just little things. Tom, just do little things. Because, listen, as the French say, the appetite grows with eating. I'm living proof. But the appetite grows... <laughs> With eating. And you just take baby steps under each one of these categories and watch how you don't begin to train your soul to be godly. Just watch. I just was curious. I'm always looking for illustrations for when I preach. And I thought, I wonder what they say. I wonder what they tell you how you should begin training if you wanted to run a marathon. I don't want to, by the way. But I wondered... So I, I turned the Google on and I Googled that. And the very first link I opened, the very first line this lady started writing, she said this, the first place to begin if you want to run a marathon is to decide why you want to run a marathon. And I quit reading. <laughs> I did because I thought that's it. You can look at this, read the Bible every day. Oh! Or you can say, I want to read the Bible every day because I want to be godly to my wife, to my husband. I want to magnify the name of Jesus. I want to glorify God in my life. I want to give this to my kids. That's why I'm doing this. Figure out why you want to be godly. Set your mind there. You will eventually run a marathon. I promise. God bless you.